Hello and welcome to another episode of Monster Island Radio. I'm Ben and I'm joined by... Graham, hello. Hello. So, uh, for starters, I'd like to apologise to, you know, all two of our regular listeners about our absence lately. Uh, Is that you and me then? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're away certainly longer than either of us would have liked, but couldn't really be helped. But uh, yeah, we're back today. And we're going to be talking about Godzilla 2014. So, ooh, ooh. Might that be somewhat topical? It may be. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, this is the first entry into the legendary MonsterVerse. Mm. So this is uh, a bit out of order because our first episode was the sequel, King of the Monsters. So if you want to listen to this in film order, listen to this episode and then go back and listen to our first episode. Um... Okay, so this came out seven years ago. So let's let's refresh our memories. Okay. Uh, so, okay, we kick off with a montage of archival footage of Godzilla being nuked at Bikini Atoll in 1954. Mm. So I feel like this film's already establishing that it's not a sequel to any of the Japanese films because, I mean, in 54, he was killed in Tokyo Bay with um, the oxygen destroyer. Mm, they sort of tease you that, like... It looks like nuclear test footage, but as the montage goes on, it's revealed, oh, they're actually trying to kill this thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they think in 1954 they killed him and that's that's the end there. So then we flash forward to 1999 in the Philippines, where Dr. Ishira Sarazawa and Dr. Graham, who work for the secret organization Monarch, are investigating a giant fossilized skeleton and two eggs, one of which hatched, went into the sea, and then subsequently caused a nuclear meltdown at the Janjira nuclear power plant in Japan, where Joe Brody and his wife Sandra are working. Uh, so Joe survived the meltdown. Sandra perished, sadly. And uh, He holds himself responsible, doesn't he? Well, does he? Well, mm. yeah, because he, he tells her to go down into the, like... I see, yeah. Uh, ...under bit of the, the plant, and then it, all this thing happens. So she dies, and he ultimately feels like it's kind of his fault kind of thing so mm. I think that's, yeah. okay yeah you know what it's weird i didn't actually really pick up on the sense of responsibility from him to be honest but uh, maybe i just I probably just didn't notice actually but yeah that's a good point <laughs> that's a good point um so yeah he survived and so over the course of the next 15 years he just became obsessed with this with you know with what actually caused the meltdown because mm. he doesn't think it was a, a natural disaster um and then that ultimately leads leads him to you know, being estranged from his son, uh, Ford. Then obviously we learn that there was a cover-up because there was a giant chrysalis at the site of the meltdown. Um, and it was still feeding off the radioactive energy there. Uh, so yeah, Joe had, Joe had predicted it, went to the site to prove it um, after convincing Ford to come along with him. Um, and then a giant creature called a Muto emerges from the chrysalis and ends up killing Joe. Uh, well, injures him and then he dies. Yeah, sad times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, so then we come back to Sarazawa and Graham, who explain to Ford the history of Monarch's investigations into Godzilla and the Muto discovery from the 90s. Um, and this is where the film kind of rewrites history a bit. So it's saying that the atomic tests at Bikini Atoll, which we saw at the start, were actually, nu- were actually nuclear attacks um, from the US to try and kill Godzilla. Mm. Um, and that apparently the USS Nautilus, which is a nuclear sub, had awakened him. Um, 
seems to be like a nice tidy way of absolving the US from any wrongdoings in the nuclear <laughs> arms race there, but I don't know. Um, so Serizawa believes that Godzilla's there to restore balance and take out the Muto, uh, but the military disagree. That's uh, that common little trope there. Um, and then another Muto ends up hatching in Nevada and is looking to re reproduce with the other Muto. So the military plan to lure all three kaijus into the ocean and nuke them. Doesn't quite work out like that. Godzilla end up, ends up killing them and then returns to the ocean, a hero. The end. I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously there's more to it than that. We'll get into but, all that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is the first Godzilla film made by a Western production company since 1998 with yeah, the one everyone knows, the um, Roland Emmerich Godzilla. Uh, so it was, yeah, the beginning of the new cinematic universe um, includes movies and comics and soon-to-be TV shows, we hear. Oh. Yeah. Um, so this one is definitely, it's jumping on the, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe bandwagon. I mean... Mm. Obviously, Marvel wasn't the first to do this, but it certainly popularized the way of doing it. You know, it's the modern iteration of like Star Wars, yeah, and, yeah Universal monsters, Trek. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Ex exactly. Um, so, like, I mean, I don't mind bandwagoning as long as it benefits me as a viewer. I mean, well, it's interesting if, like, with Godzilla, you can apply the Marvel, you know, foundations you can quite easily. Backtrack it, yeah, exactly. With stuff like you know the Universal monsters, they try to do the dark verse or something than they like with tom cruise in the mummy mm, movie and mm. that just like disintegrated because sometimes you can't just you can't like, ghostbusters is another one mm. you can't apply it to everything but um yeah with godzilla it was a pretty good fit and at first i think when the movie first came out was it said outright that it was going to be part of a universe or did they let the movie come out and just sit and see how it did because i can't quite remember if, if we already knew before we saw it, if it was going to be a new franchise per se Good. Obviously, there's always a chance that things will get a sequel, but I know, you know. after the after the premiere, it was like a couple of days after it got greenlit for two sequels straight away. Right. So whether that means that there was a universe in mind beforehand or not, I I don't know. Well, I'm sure that the studio had it in mind, but I don't know if it was like, known to the public until after it was a success. Is what I mean, but I cannot remember at all. But it's not I, important. I can't either. I think because I mean, I don't think we saw it straight away so by that by the time we saw it it was probably already known to us that it was part of a cinematic universe so mm. you know um actually did we we watched this in the cinema together didn't we no we didn't didn't we no oh <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't to me it wasn't until skull island came out that i started to clock on like oh this is going to be concurrent marvel-esque universe right so. mm. but my mom my memory's foggy of all these things but yeah um well even though we didn't watch it together even though i thought we did i think our thoughts kind of you know they generally aligned on this film so i mean yeah remind me seven years ago when we first saw it what did you make of it well i've, I've seen it three or four times now i rewatched it for this podcast obviously but when i first saw it in the cinema my expectations were with goes out saying they're very high mm. Because the trailer was so strong, I mean, like before, like Gareth Edwards' like very grounded style that was applied to Godzilla. The Halo Drop trailer was like really, yes, kind of, yeah. It really showed like how emphatic they were about taking it seriously. Mm. And in, 
ultimately the movie has too little Godzilla in it, which is now pretty much famous for being like a good movie that falls short because of that. Mm. I think there's like maybe six or eight minutes of Godzilla in the whole film. I think it's actually eleven. I is heard? it more? Yeah. It feels like it feels like so little. Even though. so, for a two-hour movie to have only ten minutes. Yeah, he doesn't turn up until the midway point of a of a two two-hour movie, and so in the cinema, as you asked, I enjoyed it, but I did leave kind of disappointed because I felt like I hadn't seen enough Godzilla, and what was there was good, and it's the same thing as with King of the Monsters, where what we saw action-wise was really strong, but just not enough of it or not not cleanly presented. They do a thing in Godzilla 2014 where almost all the action is, is shown through a voyeuristic means, like through a window or on a TV set, or you see in the halo drop the through the first-person view of like Ford Brody's like yeah. gas mask. Yeah. And that's great, but yeah, it just lacks a kind of... I just want to see it kind of, you know done in a more popcorn-y way, I suppose. So yeah. on, on face value, I, I appreciate the movie's attempt to take Godzilla seriously. And before seeing the movie, I was very on board with that concept. But I think that taking it seriously and having an enjoyable Marvel-esque action sequence, shall we say, maybe doesn't go together quite so well. And when I watched it last night for this, I found myself too... I've enjoyed it less and less as as I've rewatched it basically, and last night I enjoyed it the least. I found myself to be actively bored by it now. I've I've truly seen it, yeah, um, and I think its rewatch value is 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 spent, and it made me feel like I've been a little bit too harsh on King of Monsters actually. In retrospect, I was wondering that actually. I was hearing you say that, um, mm. but I I think generally I think I'm a, a little more positive on it than you are, but for the most part I completely agree, and especially when you say. You know, rewatching it again, it kind of gets worse each time. Not worse, but less enjoyable, I suppose. Um, because I felt exactly the same, and I think I there's a I think there's a certain point. I suppose basically after after um, Joe dies, Brian Cranston's character, it hits a wall, and I found myself kind of switching off because, you know, the the character I was following was gone. <laughs> at that yeah. point and then it was just kind of this i don't know really blair human interest story that had already peaked i mean they they, yeah. they blew they blew their load at the start with um joe and sandra and then they tried to sustain that with but with far less interesting characters of um ellie and ford and that emotionless vessel of a child that you're supposed to care about for the next hour yeah. and it's like the thing is i don't mind focusing on humans as long as they're interesting that's the thing yeah and there's something in there. It's not fully realised at a scripting stage, in my opinion. I, I do think it was actually, yeah, getting rid of Brian Cranston at the start. Like in the well, first half hour, it's like, that that was the, the most interesting part. And that's the bit that really kind of hooks you in. You know, you hadn't seen, really seen anything, the, you know, for that first half an hour. But you're still engaged. And then, you know, then when you do start to see something, it's just teases. It's lots of teasing. And then, you know but then you're still stuck with these characters you're not really interested in. Yeah. I think the movie has a, a, a number of like directorial choices which don't really work for me. In a, God, in a Godzilla sense, it deliberately mimics Spielbergian tropes, which we've commented on the Japanese ones did that. The Millennium Era is, is slathered in Jurassic Park yeah. references. Yeah. Um, and it seems like Gareth Edwards was deliberately kind of trying to 
do some Spielberg stuff. A lot of the Godzilla moments are seen through the eyes of a child, which is a very Spielbergian thing. But then if you think about like um, Tim and Lex in the original Jurassic Park, they are fully um, realized characters in the movies and think what you will of those characters but you're with them and you know their experiences their emotional reactions count yeah in godzilla 2014 it has a habit of just cutting to just any random kid there's three basically the kid on the beach the girl the japanese boy on the train and then brody's own child all see godzilla but they all have very placid unemotional reactions yeah and they're not characters either so you don't really care and there's also the element of jaws in this movie where Gareth Edwards seems to want to conceal Godzilla I mean, in an he, attempt to make him more frightening. He, but he said the same thing himself. That's, yeah. yeah. And it's like, I'm not against that in principle. I don't even mind waiting a full hour to see Godzilla because as long as the human element is strong, that's fine. But we all know Godzilla. It's like the Xenomorph thing. It's like in the first Alien, if you hadn't, if you don't know what a Xenomorph looks like, it can be very frightening. And because that's an effective movie, it still holds up, as does Jaws. But the more you see something, you know, like Godzilla, it's like, well, there's no point in really hiding it. Ultimately, you're there to, to see a character and the character's Godzilla, and it just feels like he's barely in the film. Yeah, definitely. It's a secondary character. The other side of the coin on that, to me, I think, is that Brian Cranston was, was in Godzilla, but then between filming it and it coming out, Breaking Bad gets goes supernova. It's the most popular thing in the world for a little space of time. And I think they did push the focus in the marketing and somewhat of the editing at the start of the movie is made to look like he's the main character. Mm. And what you're saying is like, oh, once Brian Cranston dies, the movie, like, all the air goes out of it. If you think about his performance, he's he's angry, he's emotional, he's shouting, he's pushing the story forward. And, like, Aaron Taylor-Johnson gets given, like, nothing to do at all as a character. He's mm. just, like, a complete empty vessel. And he's not a bad actor at all. No, I'd, yeah. He, the, you just follow him through the movie, like you follow a, a stranger through an empty train station sort of thing. It's like basically, there is, yeah. There's nothing. He just drags you through. Yeah. I was thinking this last night actually. His whole reason for being in the movie and the way he gets from point A to B is ultimately that he is a bomb um, disposal guy yeah. in the army. Yeah. By the end of the movie, he gets sent in through the halo drop to just, just you know, um, what do they call it? Diffuse yeah. um, the nuclear bomb, and then they say, "Oh, we can't defuse it." And they don't do it. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, that's his whole purpose. The whole movie has been building up to the fact that he's uh, going to defuse a bomb and then he doesn't even do it. And then the movie's basically just over immediately after. And I felt no tension with him trying to get from point A to point B either. No. He's supposed to be very worried about his wife and family. And Elizabeth Olsen does a great job in this movie selling the fear. Mm. But you don't feel like they're really connected at all. No. Really. Like they have that kind of one scene at the start where they're having some wine when he, when he first gets back. And like they kind of have a little chuckle, and that's the only kind of flicker of um, chemistry you get between them. Mm, they and, do have chemistry, don't they? Yeah. So, but it's not it's not the actor's fault at all, is it? No, no, no. So you know, age old argument: humans were very uninteresting, and that was the focus of most of it. Mm. I mean, yeah, but I mean, the I you know I get it going for the more grounded approach, so you obviously have to you know follow human characters more, but you know. It is what it is, I suppose. I like um, how they've set up, you know, Godzilla's origins and, well, the origins of any of the Titans. Or, well, not called Titans in this movie, but they are now. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the fact that, um, you know, these monsters roamed the Earth when, you know, the radiation levels were higher 
on mm. the surface and then as it depleted after the you know after a comet hit they had to go down further in, into the earth to get to the um uh the core, the core yeah where radiation's higher and then like i like how they expanded upon that in king of the monsters with that underwater civilization and stuff like that so that was yeah. that was that was really great to add that in i think that's kind of opened the doorway for the rest of the monsterverse really and whether that was intentional or not i don't know but it's uh yeah i like i like the way they did it and then it kind of comes back around to this you know the the nuclear aspect like the reason they're back is because of you know bombs dropping so it's uh it still ties into that um you know godzilla's nuclear origins so it's uh yeah i think even though that that whole kind of bit was explained basically in one scene for like five minutes when sarah zara was telling you know ford about it i think that added a lot to well to the law of you know godzilla and the monsterverse and there's uh i really enjoyed that but then you know we were back on but then we don't see godzilla for another 20 minutes after that so yeah watching the airport scene last night the build-up to godzilla's reveal is so strong it has the makings of a really great little three-act fight scene basically yep but you only get the first part of it. It's like, this, here's the Muto. The Muto's attacking people. The planes are exploding. The f- foot's there. It's like, oh my God, Like we're going to see so Godzilla. And then, yeah. This is the thing, like, the fight scenes, or missing reels, as I like to call them, are basically, like, they're, they're all really effective. Like, the, the build-up is always really effective. So, like, the, you know, the, yeah. f- the first glimpses of him, like, when, he, when you first see him going underwater, underneath the boats... And now like the flares going by him and stuff like that. And like so, all the all the teases are great, and the reveal. I, I like the reveal as well when you actually see Godzilla in full for the first time. But like the first fight, just as they clash, it cuts away, and you see it as like a news broadcast instead on a tiny yes, TV screen yeah. in the corner. And I get that it was kind of trying to be funny. It's like, oh, you know, Ellie was unaware that it was happening, you know, because she wasn't watching the TV at that point. And it's like, is it really worth cutting away from that for, a, you know, a, a little laugh? If that if that's what they were trying to do, I don't know. Well, they should have given us a bit of, a bit of the fight and then had the laugh as well. Why not both kind of situation? Yeah, yeah. You know, the fight doesn't have to be huge, but like, let's see a couple of hits and you know, something. Um, can Godzilla like pick up a little plane and smack this Muto in the face? You know, yeah. <laughs> why not? <laughs> um, but I guess that goes against the grounded aspect of it, but. Mm. yeah i mean godzilla as a horror movie is a very interesting concept and of course the reaction to this was shin godzilla on the japanese side which shows just how good that can actually be right Mm. yeah but shin godzilla isn't too concerned with absolute realism either no um so yeah i think it's just that there's a preconception of the movie and the team who made it that's so like this is what we're doing and we're resolute and we're this is you know what we want and they have achieved it effectively but it's very emotionless like even if Godzilla was still like not in it very much and the cuts were the same I think like things like Ken Watanabe right um, yeah. who's who's uh, Sirizawa there's no real personality there either and you fit Monarch as an organisation is very scheming and unpleasant and secretive you and dangerous you're right? supposed to kind of sympathise with Sirizawa and like, I think you do but it makes you wonder why he's working for this company that seems so, yeah, skeevy. That's the thing. It's, it's like really, I, it's quite strange. There's this thing of like, yeah, he he falls into what I consider to be quite a 
I consider it to be quite a uh, stereotypical role for a Japanese guy in one of these movies where he is very sort of like reserved and softly spoken and like, you know, thinking about almost the spirituality of it all. It's like, that's not bad. I, I think he does a good job as an actor and I'm sure like he took the role wanting to do that. Mm. But there's a bit where Godzilla turns up at this airport and then it cuts back to them on the military ship with the US Army and they're talking to the, the monarch people and between them, there is no real visceral reaction to Godzilla at all. Like they've all, they've already reacted to the Mutos, but the fact that like Godzilla shows up and this is the first time he's ever been seen in, in the modern world and nobody really reacts to him in any big way. You think that the military guys would be saying to the monarch scientists, like, are you, are you kidding? Like, you kept the Muto a secret for decades. Yeah. And you also knew about this fucking Godzilla thing. Like, you'd, you'd be furious. You get some hothead US Army guy, because the guy they've got in charge of the army in, like, the movie, the actor's, like, fine. But again, given nothing real to do, I think he'd be fuming, like, really angry that there's not enough, like, you, Monarch kept this secret, like, should be you know, an enormous point of conflict in the film. And it isn't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I suppose, like the, I suppose the lack of a reaction from anyone in Monarch is because they're already familiar with it. But yeah, you're right about the like, was it Admiral Stens? Yeah, and yeah, it extends to the rest of the cast as well. Like even uh, Ford Brody is not, he's nonplus about Godzilla, really. Yeah, there's a, bit, there's a little bit of screaming at the airport, but you would think that Godzilla was pretty much a known entity. I mean, yeah, if you think of like Cloverfield. You know, whatever you make of it, their reactions are much more real. Mm, and you know, they just announced they're, they're making another Cloverfield, a direct sequel to that first found footage movie recently. As long as they just ignore Cloverfield paradox, we're all good. <laughs> I haven't, I don't particularly like Cloverfield, and I haven't seen either of the sequels, but I'm sure it's on the ten, Monster Island radar, shall we say. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> 10 Cloverfield Lane is definitely worth a watch. Paradox, I don't, I don't remember anything. I remember <laughs> the first scene, then that's it. And I'm not even kidding. I remember nothing. Fell asleep or something. There's the pe- I the think my eyes were open, but my brain was asleep. <laughs> <laughs> the whole clever thing, field thing of these three movies being completely disconnected and they did just slap it on after the fact is fascinating, to say the least. I, but you we'll, know what? That doesn't really bother me. I know we're kind well, of veering they, off topic here. That's how they did Die Hard, isn't it? All the Die Hard movies yeah. are... They're just like at these arid scripts that float around in production hell, and then they say like, "Let's make it a diehard movie," and they just throw out another one. I, yeah. I'm, I'm all for that. So if you want to, if, if you want to do that with a Godzilla movie, I'm, I'm more than down for it. Do like yeah. a, yeah, a horror Godzilla movie. <laughs> I'm totally down for that. Yeah. So uh, what will we say? Well, I was just going on and on complaining about the structural difficulties of this movie. Yeah. But I know that you actually really loved. The sound design you've said before this is your favorite godzilla raw yeah that's it so, exactly. i mean because there was are like, some positives to be shared perhaps yeah maybe we should move on to positives and then come back around to the negatives <laughs> um so yeah i suppose yeah if we're going to go to like our yeah favorite moment is yeah it's easily that raw in chinatown it's like finding an extended version of your favorite song for me mm. it was just it was fantastic and in, in the cinema especially so like i still even when i watch it on tv i still get goosebumps when i hear it and it's, it sounds weird to you know for a raw to elicit that kind of reaction, but no. it does because you know it's it's something you're familiar with, but then it's just amped up and it's like it's re- it is mind blowing. I mean, to anyone else who you know they probably wouldn't react that same way, but they were clearly they they knew what they were doing. 
Um, yeah. And- what is it? They call it the ASMR Godzilla yes, exactly. Raw. You can probably get it on YouTube. <laughs> um, and the way they build to it is great as well because, I mean, it's, it's after the Halo drop. Um, but that, that specific scene where he roars, it's so the sound drops and then you just see Godzilla's silhouette in the smoke with the light flashes. Um, and then even the music takes a different turn and you just kind of get this like, Oh, yeah. This one chord, like on a. It's on almost a, like uh, Stanley Kubrick type. A little sound, bit, yeah. Which obviously the music beforehand with the Halo with, drop is from 2001, yeah, right? Yeah, so. Requiem. Mm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you just get this one chord, like on a Rhodes piano or something like that. It just plays a few times. And, and just by that, you know that the way the music changes, you know something's coming. Yeah. So, you know, your, your expectations are already sky high, really, at that point. And then lets out the loudest and longest roar he's ever made. It's just relentless. It's absolutely fucking brilliant. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. And it makes me tingly now. Yeah. Thinking about yeah, that. Yeah, same. So. It's, it's so good. And apparently it took, I mean, this, is, this isn't news, really. Um, anyone could find this out. But apparently it took like six months to get that roar down over the course of making this movie. And they used microphones that could record um sounds and frequencies outside of audible human frequencies and then they pitched them down and distorted them to help create it and that's just like it's yeah very clever very very clever and this is <laughs> here we go circling back around to the negatives um this is where <laughs> i feel kind of conflicted because i think that's some of the best sound design i've, I've ever heard but then there's some parts which i feel were just like completely missed the mark and so mm. i've got really mixed feelings about it so um that bit when the um, uh, Ford is on that railway bridge. Yeah, and you he, spoke about this specifically on our King of Monsters discussion, didn't you? There's like a, they use like a creaking chair. Yeah. And to to I, you, it's not disguised well enough. Like it, it's supposed to be like giant pieces of wood and metal moving, but you, you're not fooled by it basically. And it just took me straight out of it, and it was, uh, it was so disappointing because I remember it was you that told me that that's what it was afterwards, and I was like, oh yeah, that's exactly what I thought it was. Uh, it's just like ah. I don't know if it's like, mm, maybe I'm being too nitpicky actually. Cause I don't know. I mean, I think um, it, it's both a blessing and a curse f- for, for people who, who are into to sound like you as, as much as they are, because you're going to both appreciate things mm. on, on a different level, knowing how it's made. But also, if you do know how something is made, that can sometimes take away some of the, the magic of it. Because yeah. you, just, you just know, like, oh, that's a chair. And they've lowered the tone and octave, and now it sounds like a bridge, but it doesn't, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's it's nice that the way they did it, it kind of sounds, you know, organic. Um, you know, <laughs> using like real things to make real sounds. It's like that's if you're gonna do if you're gonna do something like that, that's the best way to do it. And so, like, you know, making the Muto sounds, I don't know how they did it, but it doesn't sound like a, a digital effect. It sounds like something that's been manipulated. It's uh yeah, I think they for the most part, they were firing on all cylinders for that. Um, so yeah, it was the sound design was just absolutely top notch, and the music as well. I I really liked. It was kind of some of it harkens back to, you know, the original Godzilla music from 1954, but without just being that music, just redone. Um, and yeah, it was good. And like, and as you were saying, you know, having Requiem from 2001 um, in there as well. It's like a good. It's a it's good choices of music as well as the original score. So it's, uh, yeah, an audio-visual treat. Yeah, really. I think I think that's one of the reasons that makes it a, a frustrating movie more than an outright bad movie because the parts that are good are so good. They just feel like they are a, they should be a prelude 
to something more. Yes. And, you know, maybe, oh, well, there's sequels. That's what it leads on to. It's like, well, no, the movie should stand on its own, I think. And, yeah, it's a shame because I think the Halo drop is the best part of the film. And as you said, it leads into that very haunting use of, of different music and then the raw, all that's like one contained sequence effectively. Yeah. And um, maybe they, if they'd held the Halo drop back from the trailer, that would have had more impact in the cinema. But potentially, I it's, mean, it's like it's lots of really great pieces of cinema, like really, really good pieces of cinema that just gets bogged down by teases and uninteresting characters and covering of fight scenes. Mm. And you, but you've got these super strong moments there, and it's like it's kind of littered throughout, and it's yeah, that's what makes it so irritating. You're kind of up and down with it the whole way through yeah it would also be maybe more gratifying if rather than having a scene with Brody and his wife at the start and then not seeing them together together until the end just show them reuniting at the end and make that the whole journey of the movie or something like that right, not having the bit at the start potentially I just mm. think there's a way like they could have moved the pieces around because you do wait so long to see Godzilla and, it, and it's so fleeting it's just like well seeing little snippets of him like in the smoke as they dropped at the very beginning of the movie and then not seeing him again for like half an hour and then seeing a little bit more with a roar and then cut away again like that would have actually built momentum into the, the climax um albeit like that climax would still need to be a decent fight scene yeah but yeah i think peppering it out throughout the movie as is the way with, with jaws and alien and other films that try this rather than it being like well for hour one of the film basically nothing other than like Amuto, um, who is not who we've gone to see, and then they 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 they're too sparing with it throughout the rest of it. But, I, th- I yeah. think how it works with Jaws and Alien and stuff like that is they are hard to find, you know, creatures that mm. are you know kind of picking oh, picking yes, off I people. See. Whereas Godzilla, he's not not subtle. Godzilla is, he? is like a building, <laughs> so like it doesn't work no. for that. Like for a monster of that size, well, three monsters, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, the, there's that bit in Las Vegas where they go to find the female oh, Muto and they think it's going to be like in that little room and then it cuts to the mountain outside and it's already like Oops. blown to pieces. Didn't notice it's the like, giant hole in the know? mountain. Yeah, I love that Las Vegas bit, but it's so dumb. It's so silly. And that's the thing, actually. It's like Godzilla it kind of is a bit silly and I think that the legendary movies as a whole have done a, a fairly good job of making it look realistic in terms of the appearance of the atmospherics and all the like debris and stuff that they've done and and uh, there's lots of atmosphere in king of monsters which looks great mm. grounding it in that way is is good but grounding it at a, scri- at a script level it hurts the film i think is the ultimate takeaway yeah uh, it becomes a, a bit emotionless and too empty i want some more anger i want some more like i need to get back to my wife and she could be dead and you know, that not knowing what each other is. Like, there's even a scene where Ford Brody calls Elle and she doesn't pick up because she's bathing the kid. It's like, fair enough. But if, you're, if your husband was missing and there's three <laughs> kaijus out there, you'd have your phone on you, like, all the time. I think the kid's bath would probably come second yeah. to, like, making sure you don't miss that call. So there's things about it where it just feels like there isn't enough emotion there, which is, is interesting, to be honest, because when um, Gareth Edwards did... Uh, Star Wars Rogue One, which I doubt you've seen, but oh, yeah, I've not seen it. It gets a lot of criticism for the exact same thing, where the action is extremely strong. For my, for, in my opinion, uh, it's got the best Star Wars action out of any of the Star Wars movies. It's really satisfying viewing, but the the characters, the humans in it, 
you know, actors try as they may, they haven't got anything really to do. Yeah, but, um, I mean, so and, uh, can we fault Gareth Edwards for that? Because he knows what he's doing, directing wise. But is yeah, it, does it come down to the writing? Yeah, he doesn't write these movies, yeah. so that's fair, absolutely. But then it does a correlation, you know, just just between these two things. It, it tends to be any film he does. <laughs> That seems to be a common complaint. I've not seen Monster, to be fair, which I know is his big like breakout thing. Yeah, I've not seen um, it either. I should have. I was meant to watch you know, it when it came out, but never got around to it. I think if you do a Godzilla and then you do a Star Wars and they're both good and bad for identical reasons, there's it's a little safe kind of, to assume. Yeah. <laughs> and I like his style because like, honestly, like the action that he does is great. It's just like, yeah, it, it's not supported by an emotional human element. So this is a different thing, I think. We always complain about the humans in these Godzilla movies, but normally it's because they're annoying or time-wasting or something like that. But in this movie, it feels like it's just like... They're just like not even like emoting. Yeah, exactly. Even... They, com- they flatline yeah. completely. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. Because any of the Godzilla parts, any monster parts, I think are, are just top-notch. The bits that you see. Mm. It's just... You, you know there's something there you're just not getting to see it it's it's yeah it's a frustrating watch and i think i'm complaining more than i would have if i'd only seen this a couple of times back when it came out but yeah under the harsh light of day i can scrutinize it a lot more than i would have before which yeah. is probably not fair um i don't know i mean uh, yeah i think it's it's fair enough really like Maybe it has suffered a little bit from having uh, it, its sequel come out, and King of Monsters does have some of the same problems, but there is undoubtedly more monster in it. So, mm. and and King of Monsters does go more in that kind of pseudo science fiction comic booky direction, where it's like, okay, we've got some weird technology that's kind of from the future, but it's modern day, and it's very, more, it's a bit more pulpy and silly and. You know, it makes you feel like your time with the humans is a, is a little better spent. I think I know when we discussed King of Monsters, you were more annoyed by the the people in that movie than I was yeah. on that occasion, which is rare, I think, because usually I'm the one who hates <laughs> human beings. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't say it's unfair criticism, honestly, mm. uh, at all. Um, so, what did you make of the Mutos? You know, they were the they were created specifically for this movie. You know, American made kaiju's essentially. Mm. Um, what do you make of them? I, th- I actually think the movie sh- should take a lot of credit for hiding them from any of the promotional materials because okay. we didn't know they were going to be in the movie mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So that was like a really nice surprise. And and this actually goes back to what you're saying about is it fair criticism? In fairness, the first time you watch it when you don't know a muto is going to be there and then it's revealed, that's very meaty as a viewer. On a rewatch, True. when you do know it's going to be there, maybe less so. Yeah. But to answer your question, the mutos themselves, I think really cool actually and i don't like this sort of like wormy spider sort of mm, there's a there's a design um kind of approach that's been going on in movies since cloverfield really of the monsters being sort of like knuckle driven kind of very kind of alien like creatures but don't have like any particular character that you see a lot in cloverfield and other jj abrams movies this is, yeah because i was thinking like you know, to to look at them, I think they're actually, to be honest, I think they're quite unexciting to look at. Like, mm. just giant grey functional bugs. Uh, it's not but, not bad by any means, so they're certainly menacing looking, but it leans on that sort of Cloverfieldy 
auger-esque design like that we spoke about before in godzilla 2000 mm. you know and it's like even the naming is sort of similar it's like you know like auger for example it's a contraction of organizer organize organizer organizer yes. g1 yeah <laughs> and you know muto is an acronym for massive, massive unidentified yeah. terrestrial organism you know it's like it's, it's that same vein um, I I liked it though. What well. I, I think it actually rides. It's on the right side of the line. Is what I was going to say. I didn't. Like, th- I didn't think you'd think that. I I think they've grown on me a little bit over the years. Actually, okay. Um, I like the way that the, the male is smaller than the female. So there's like that interest and the scene where the Muta does the dive bomb into the water through the naval ships in San Francisco is one of the best shots in the movie too. So I I agree. Like visually, you know, their their design is is a little bit too Cloverfieldish. But um, it's the way they're used um, in the fight. Uh, you know what is there is actually very cool. I think so. Overall, I like them. I think you know, and the re- the reveal was good. But I'm guessing you're a little cooler on them, given what you just said. Yeah, basically, it's just because I think visually quite unappealing. Uh, I suppose I was expecting something a bit a bit more colourful. Mm. You know, something that actually you could kind of tell what it was. But with this, it's kind of they looked a bit like. The faces looked a bit like the Starship Troopers bugs, <laughs> and but with wings and spider legs, and I was like, eh. and but the Starship Troopers bugs were like yellow and black from what I remember, and like really striking looking. Whereas this is like a, a desaturated version. Was, I found that sl- slightly disappointing. Um, God, I'm really negative on this, aren't I? The thing this, <laughs> now, this is the thing. Like, I actually do enjoy this film. Oh man, I've, I need to I need to t- pull it back a bit here. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just yeah, a, a little disappointing because I uh, this is where King of the Monsters I thought was really good because it was colourful for a start, mm, you know. And yeah. I, I maybe it's just I'm easily pleased by bright colours. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I mean I know this isn't something you're a fan of either, but like um, Avengers Endgame, mm. which has this massive final battle scene in it, which is very satisfying because you finally get to see everybody clash at the end of this like 24 movie thing. Very exciting. But on a rewatch, I dislike how grey and brown and bland it looks. It's just like, what, we got like Captain America and Spider-Man here and yeah, it's just like grey? Like, come on. Yeah. So I think that's a part of when you ground something too much. It's like, yeah, it, it, it comes up with the with the overall aesthetic of the movie, I think, that yeah. they're going to be hidden in, in dust and debris and stuff. Yeah. So, but you yeah. Know, maybe I'm being too harsh because if we think about it, I mean... All eyes were on this film after Godzilla 98. True. So they, yeah, they needed to take a more grounded approach. And so I don't know why I'm giving them flack for doing that. Uh, really, because, it's, you well, know, maybe they, we I th- disagree then. Yeah, I, I think they needed to, yeah, keep it a bit more real looking. And I suppose, yeah, a, a giant grey bug is more realistic than a giant yellow black and pink bug or something a giant three-headed dragon yeah yeah exactly <laughs> you know because for a lot of people this would be the probably be the first godzilla film they've ever seen and they'd be like okay so there's godzilla why is he fighting a giant pink bug like you know but if you have something that's like <laughs> a little less descript it's, it feels more like a you know a parasite that he's fighting you know like a, a piece of nature that he's fighting mm. so you know it makes sense in that respect and as a reveal as well, like it being secret and not being included in marketing, if it had been kept under wraps and then there was a giant pink bug, surprise, I think that would have had a very adverse effect from audiences. Yeah, I think so too. But that's not to say that the, I mean, the the female Muta has that like orange belly full of those radioactive eggs. So there is like colour there and maybe they could have like, 
they they tiptoe a little bit into the into even the flame breath, the atomic breath from Godzilla. Mm. So I feel like there is kind of like first movie syndrome where if Godzilla were to fight the Mutos in a if it was you know deeper into a series, you probably would have seen them be a bit braver with color and that kind of thing. So yeah, I guess it both it suffers a little bit from hiding away from the silliness of Godzilla ninety eight. But, but then it has to. Yeah, but then also my overall criticism was that, yes, it's grounded, but that doesn't mean it needs to be dull. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of Godzilla's redesign? Um, I quite like it, actually. I think it's a decent mix of like the somewhat stubby Godzilla that occasionally popped up in some of the Japanese stuff, but he's also been sort of adapted so that he is more easily animated in CG. So you do get a lot of the, the remnants of him in... Uh, the costume because there is still there i think but they've changed it enough that we can move this guy and have him be a bit more athletic so i think it looks good yeah i yeah i absolutely love the design um they you know they took into consideration the fact is you know he's amphibian so they're giving him gills mm. um quite a lot of the japanese audience thought he was too fat <laughs> and it's like <laughs> well he's been out of action for a long time he's been, yeah, exactly i mean but the thing is he's huge and he needs something to support him so he's gonna be stocky yeah, yeah, it just, it just makes sense, and I, yeah, I mean, really, Plus the, really like the it. costume. Godzilla has a real pot belly on him, you know. Yeah, that's why I found the criticism so strange. Maybe, maybe it's a mistranslation. Maybe they meant like it's just too. Maybe Bulky. they just meant too stocky. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then by King of the Monsters, he looks a bit more trimmed down a little bit. He's a, he's a bit more beefy, like yeah, he's more muscle than hit the than blubber. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's been in that underground temple, just like lifting <laughs> pyramids and stuff. <laughs> Um, yeah, this is this is well until the Netflix Godzilla movies. This is the the biggest incarnation of Godzilla mm. as well. And we'll get to that at some point. We, I'm sure. Yeah, we will do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this one's I think it's like three hundred feet, three hundred and fifty feet, something like that. And I, you know, for me, I think the bigger the better because I like seeing Godzilla as like an unstoppable force. So you know that makes any threats that he faces that can actually take him on seem that much more threatening. Um, and then like you really feel his like size and presence when like he's on the Golden Gate Bridge and you know, he he grabs the the railing there, and I was just like, you know, I, seeing him being that that big is just uh, it's a real treat for me. And you know, obviously, you can't have a disaster movie without kids being trapped on a bus on a bridge. So <laughs> I love how um, Elizabeth Olsen puts her son on the bus with her like colleague, the black haired lady, and she's like, "I'll look after him. Don't worry." She's never seen again. Oh yeah, she's not. (laughs) During all that bus drama, you hear her voice like once off screen. Clearly they couldn't get the actor back. (laughs) So I wonder if all of that bridge stuff was like inserted later because they were like, we need some more Godzilla. Or maybe the Godzilla went through the bridge but the kid wasn't involved or something. I don't know. Maybe. But clearly she wasn't there when they shot. It did feel a bit tacked on. A lot of this feels like they moved it around. I mentioned earlier with with Brian Cranston, you know, hitting stardom at the same time. It felt like they kind of did move some stuff around yeah um so who can say if they want to do like a monsterverse thing and have brian cranston be in prequel movies they they kind of could because um well there's 15 years of yeah exactly missing basically it would be it would be stupid but he never says that he hasn't had like previous adventures (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) um so overall i guess uh despite everything i was saying my usual kind of you know nagging on it kind of way i do think it was a strong godzilla film um 
as we normally say you know it's like could could a newcomer come into this and that's often what i'm looking for mm. and i think absolutely and i think for yeah. the majority as i said for the majority of the audience this was this was their first godzilla film if they hadn't seen 1998 you know yeah and yeah i think it's having like i say you know having something a bit more grounded to kind of hook people back into godzilla after 1998 i think this was this was the way to do it and you know and something that it really deserves credit for is making godzilla a, you know a sympathetic force of nature again that you don't want to annoy because like they they did it right by setting up the mutos as the bad guy you know they they killed um joe's wife at the start it wasn't godzilla that did that you know mm-hmm. like this kind of you know setting up godzilla as the savior as the hero like even though he you know blunders through and destroys buildings you don't think at any point that he's the bad guy and that's like that's absolutely what you wanted right out of the gate for this and they and they nailed that so i think this is a great first godzilla film for anyone who's even remotely interested in godzilla or even if they're not it's still i think a pretty good film to watch yeah i would agree with that i think as a first film it absolutely serves its audience even though it does have frustrating elements i think the more invested in godzilla you are the more frustrating that stuff can be Mm. um but i know a lot of people like it uh it's it's experimental it tries something different um it it distances itself very nicely from the 98 movie uh so although i think that it could be a lot better it, it does its job and obviously it's helped to establish like these sequels coming out so it's far from a failure i think it's just that on repeat viewings, things that irritated us will irritate us as more as time goes on. Yeah. But as we've also said, the parts of it which are good are contenders for like best Godzilla moments ever yeah, still. Easily. So, you know, when we do these podcasts, it's always kind of nitpicky and we like to get down in the dirt about why we like or dislike a movie. Mm. That's not to say that we unanimously hate it or, or love it either it's just like we like to make it complicated but <laughs> if you if, if you were to recommend it like i would recommend it i absolutely would i think it's a good movie like yeah yeah fine like, if, if you want to have a a good godzilla movie then there's 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 this is one of the best choices yeah no um okay good uh this isn't the only thing that was related to this film because there was also a comic godzilla oh, yes. awakening when you put your Blu-ray in, it tells you about it. Oh, really? Yeah. It pops up on the screen like, why don't you check out the Godzilla Awakening comic book? And I was no. like, Ben's going to tell me about it, so I don't need to. <laughs> so I'm listening. Um, so I have had it for a quite a long time, but I never read it. I don't know why. I just, I just, I have it on my shelf. And I, you know, I just never got around to it until last night. Um, and so I, I'll just kind of wrap up the story a bit just to, just to clue you in. So it's, mm. it starts off in the 80s with um, Serizawa talking to his father, Eiji, mm. who I think is a reference to the special effects guy for the 1954 film. Could be wrong. But I mean, I mean, um, Ishiro Serizawa is, you know, a reference to Ishiro Honda, the director of 54 and Dr. Serizawa from 54 as well. So it's it makes sense. Then, yeah. yeah. Um, so he's telling Ishiro about his job working for Monarch during its formation and then we flash back to 1945 and we see Eiji spotting he spots a flying monster after the first bomb drops on Hiroshima and then he ends up joining Monarch who uh, examine evidence of Mutos and uh, and discover that the flying creature is a radioactive superorganism and they call Mm. it Shinomura which means um, death death swarm swarm of death I think it was 
and it can self-replicate and all this. Um, and while tracking Shinomura, Eiji hears from witnesses about um, another creature, Godzilla, chasing it off. And similarly to the movie, we have Eiji trying to convince the army that Godzilla's there to maintain balance and that he's yeah, he's not the bad guy. <laughs> he's trying to keep the, the other bad guys at bay. And but then the army decided to take action, and that they they see both Godzilla and Shinomura heading towards uh, Bikini Atoll, and then nuke them both there. So that montage footage you see at the start oh. of the movie is actually yeah, it's, it's bombing both Godzilla and the Shinomura. But obviously, so the Shinomura is not a muto or anything like that. It's a different it, thing. It is a muto technically. Okay. Yeah, it's it's like a giant flying xenomorph, basically, and it's made up of you know millions of cells so if part of it breaks off it could self-replicate and build itself back up again so the only way to get rid of it is to completely annihilate it um so yeah they take it out and then we flash forward back to uh, back to shira sarazawa at uh, his father's funeral and he's then approached by monarch to join and then yeah the rest is history so i mean overall it was a fun read and it did add a bit more depth to the the lore of the monsterverse uh, but I did notice it kind of contradicted itself a little bit because in the movie, Serizawa said that the USS Nautilus is what awoke Godzilla. But we see in this that Godzilla had already been active for several years chasing this Shinomura. Oh. So when they sent the Nautilus down in the comic, it, was, it did grab its attention, but it certainly wasn't what awake, awakened him. And I mean, normally I'd chalk that up to a miscommunication between, you know, between Publisher between the publishers the and movie producers, the movie producers. Yeah. yeah exactly um but the thing is the guy that wrote this comic is the guy that did the screenplay for the movie so I, that seemed like a bit of an oversight i mean this guy that did the screenplay he wasn't the the final right oh he was the final writer of like three or four different people so maybe it's just i think it might just have been a bit of an oversight on his part but i'm a bit i'm a bit picky when it comes to that kind of thing because I don't know, yeah, I read a lot of DC comics and there's a lot of, you know, inconsistencies. I, I, a lot of inconsistencies and I tend to pick up on these things. It's, it's an annoying habit of mine. Um, so well, I, just, I noticed that and it's a bit, it's just a little bit disappointing because I've really wanted it to, you know, be one and the same, but it, it felt a little bit like they kind of didn't care that much, a li- mm. only a little bit, um, because I, I wanted them to, you know, treat it you know on the same level really because I'm, I'm such a comics fan like having catering to to me with godzilla comics is is great and if it ties into the movies that's just awesome but if they kind of like slack a bit on this i'm like well is it is this just a cynical cash grab or is this actually something that's going to add to it i do feel like it adds to it more than it takes away you know so yeah it might be a bit cash grabby but i do feel like it added to it and it was a worthwhile read you know, it wasn't bogged down with fluff and expanded on the origins and things like that. So it's, mm, yeah, it, it's good. I, I enjoyed it, but mm. yeah. I can see why it would be annoying with those kind of inconsistencies because the connections are the entire point of an interconnected universe. And when the connections don't quite work, it becomes annoying. So yeah, I don't think you're out of step with anybody for finding that a bit of an irritation. Um, but then it's early days as well. Uh, you know, the bigger these things get, the more of those will inevitably crop up. But then also it's like you have to have some concession with it. Like, oh, you're trying to make a huge, big interconnected story. Inevitably, there's going to be some like details that get shifted left or right. Yeah. Um, which is 
I mean, just like part of it, a part of it, I suppose. Could rationalize it away and say that Sarazawa just kind of forgot to mention it. <laughs> so, like, I think he's just spouting some monarch, you know, misinformation yeah. nonsense. That's probably it, actually. You know what? That's probably it. There, there we go. You rationalized it for me. I'm, mm. I'm happy with that. I've I mean, been a long term MCU fan, so ration, rationalizing little bits of bullshit <laughs> like that is one of my skills. <laughs> um, yeah, I, mean, I was yeah, I was expecting. I wasn't really expecting much. I spoke to you last night, so I really wasn't expecting anything from it. Because I mean, I for Wonder Woman eighty four, there was a a tie in, a prequel tie in, and it was it was honestly it's a waste of money. I mean, it, it, the thing is, like the stories weren't bad, but it didn't didn't add anything to the movie. Did, mm. did nothing. If that should have been a free promotional thing, like it, it would get Wonder Woman fans, you know, fans of the movies reading comics. And yeah, and vice versa. So, but anyway, that's my that's my complaints about the Wonder Woman eighty four comic. Uh, how was how was the artwork and that kind of the artwork was the Godzilla book was it was hit and miss because the Godzilla looked great, really, really, really good. But when it came to seeing A.G. Serizawa, there were points in it where he looked like a blonde western white man huh. and then in the next panel he'd be back back to being uh you know dark haired japanese man and i was like is this the same person i i, I was genuinely confused i'll i'll show you a, i'll send you a screenshot <laughs> um, <laughs> later but yeah it was really it was really jarring and i was like oh this is that was frustrating i've there's just li- the, uh, little bits like that put it on the put it, put it on the instagram on the yeah so. i think i will so everyone knows what I'm talking about, um, but I mean, it's it's definitely worth reading. I mean, it doesn't take long. It's not too wordy, which is nice because I mean, I just read Batman White Knight, and I I sent you a photo of that, and just one page was like reading Silmarillion. So I was trying to read Norseka, which um, is a famous Studio Ghibli movie. It was a manga before it was a, a film. Mm. And it may as well just be a novel, honestly. Like yeah. you, you struggle to see the pe- the, the little people between the bloody words. There's so much <laughs> fucking text in there. But yeah, this is a separate discussion. Yeah. So I mean, this the guy that wrote. Oh, damn it, I've forgotten his name. He he's definitely you can tell he's a screenwriter because yeah he's right, and that I think that translates well to comics mm. because you know you're letting you're also letting the pictures tell the words. Unlike a novelist who doesn't trust the pictures, they're only trusting the words they're writing down. So. Yeah, he's definitely got a flair for it. So, you know, happy to see him do another one, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, it was good. Definitely worth the read. Um, so yeah, I guess that kind of wraps it up. Anything you want to add, Graham? Um, just that at some point we will do a podcast where we unanimously love a movie, uh, despite <laughs> as finding things to complain about. And yeah, I mean, for everything we've said, like, yeah, Godzilla 2014 is pretty solid. The effects are fantastic. The actors, while given not much to do, are very good, very well. You know, they 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 do sort of enrich the the content a little bit. So yeah, don't don't think it's a bad film or anything. Like it's actually really worth a watch. And if if you're you know if it's kicked off an entire franchise, then I don't think you know you can be down on it too much. Yeah. Yeah. I'd actually be open to seeing Gareth Edwards do another one. Actually, if they said to him, "Here's a little bit of a bigger budget, go nuts with the action this time. Don't hold back." That would be lovely because yeah. I think he's capable of that. He was down to do another two, I think, but then mm-hmm. Star Wars 
popped up and then I think he was spending his time on that. So maybe we'll see him again soon. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Um, okay. So thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, but actually, before that, where can they find you, Graham, on the old internet? Oh, no. Um, if you like retro video games that have little to nothing to do with Godzilla, <laughs> you can watch Fossil Arcade on YouTube. Um, maybe I'll do a Godzilla game at some point. I keep saying I will, but I haven't so far. So, yeah, yeah. There's, there's time. If you like, if you like games, and you know, it's there, Fossil Arcade. And if you want to hear us complaining about things we love, also listen to the Fossil Arcade podcast. <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, for me, you can find me at Ben M R Hall for my drawings and stuff on Instagram or on Twitter, um, and uh, it's at Monster Island Radio on Instagram for this podcast. And on Twitter, it's Monster Island RP. So, yeah, get in touch with us there if you want to talk about anything Godzilla or anything at all. Why not? <laughs> um, so, yeah, until the next one, everyone. Bye. See ya.